When you post hunting photos on Instagram, they get censored. When you post on Go Wild, you get virtual fist bumps from fellow hunters. When you buy gear on Amazon, you gas up a billionaire spaceship. When you buy gear on Go Wild, we donate to a camp that teaches kids to hunt, fish, and shoot. See the difference? Go Wild is a free social community built by hunters for hunters. Join today at DownloadGoWild.com and I'll give you 10 bucks just for setting up your account. And you'll keep unlocking GoWild rewards as you share content because guess what? We like hunting pictures. Join at DownloadGoWild.com or in the App Store. The Houndsman XP Podcast is fueled by Joy Dog Food. Joy Dog Food has a rich tradition of supporting the Houndsman of America. Founded in 1945, Joy is proud of its history and the relationship it has built with the American Houndsman. And in 76 years, there's never been a recall. Made with 100% American-made high-quality ingredients, Joy Dog Food has one of the highest calorie-dense formulas on the market. For 76 years, this made-in-America product has kept hunting dogs in the field day after day, season after season. And when we say made-in-America, Joy has a long track record of fighting for American freedoms by being on the front lines against the animal rights movement and their extremist tactics. Joy will fuel your hounds and fight for your freedoms, fueled by Joy. This is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get up there! Yeah! 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 Good boy! Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many days how many days a week do you spend on As much as I can to be honest with you. Anytime that I get I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else, I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. <laughs> There is not a hotter topic on the interwebs than the iconic dog food question. A lot of questions out there about dog food, and there is not a hotter brand on the market for houndsmen right now than Joy Dog Food. This is not an infomercial for Joy Dog Food by any means, but we are going to tell the complete story of Joy Dog Food from its beginnings in 1945 all the way up until Wade Gratzwitz bought the brand. We are talking to Chip Cozier Sr. He was on the at the ground level 
of the development of Joy Dog Food. Why do we want to talk about Joy Dog Food? I'll tell you, tell you why I like talking about this topic. As houndsmen and a hunting community, we have to find and support brands who support us. We can't simply be in that race for the bottom, that race for the cheapest price. We can't buy into the hype. There are a lot of brands out there who will step up and put a picture of a hunting dog on their bag and then market it to the hunting public. Joy Dog Food has been instrumental in developing the lifestyle that, that we have right now. And you're going to hear that when Chip and I talk about the beginnings of how they mixed the original dog food, the name changes, how they got the name, how they came up with formulas. Uh, it's it's going to be a little bit technical in the middle, but eventually we are going to get to how important the Cozier family was and Joy Dog Food was in PKC youth programs, super stakes, you know, the, the very things that make our world go round are being talked about in this. You're going to be surprised. Mr. Cozier had a close personal relationship with Jarvis Humphers. And with Jarvis's recent passing, we spent some time at the end of this also to pay tribute to a true innovator in the coon hunting world. And you'll hear how Mr. Cozier uh, de describes Jarvis Umphers and how he brought coon hunting into the modern era and put us on center stage. This is a episode packed full of history. It's an episode packed full of old stories, funny stories. Uh, it's it's just a great, great episode that uh, we get right down to business on this thing and talk about Joy Dog Food. Yes, they are a sponsor of this show, and the reason they are is because I believe in this company. They're not marketing uh, their brand to me and then using their dollars and funneling it off to organizations and movements and things that undermine our lifestyle. Give Joy Dog Food a look. Give this podcast a listen and see if you don't agree with me that this is a brand that deserves your support. Guys, the Old South Dog Box is rocking, and we're going to get the tailgate down. It is time to dump the box. Southern Hound Honey Magazine is the most comprehensive magazine that represents your lifestyle as a houndsman. If you can hunt it with a hound, it is being covered in the pages of Southern Hound Honey Magazine. You also get an in-depth look at the men and women who are engaged in this lifestyle living it every day to the fullest from the rocky mountains to the southern swamps and across the ocean with articles about our international houndsmen and what they're chasing across the pond go to southernhoundhunting.com get your subscription for 15 dollars a year southern hound hunting magazine promoting the fair chase experience This studio is extremely fancy. Um, you can give you a little virtual tour here. You got the hounds. Hey, you need to look at this pit bull. This pit bull is shiny as he can be. My wife says he's never been this shiny. You told me she sings joy to the world and running around the house. That's right. Yeah. She's got the joy, 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 joy down in her heart. <laughs> yeah. 
Yep, that's what she thinks. Yeah. No, hey, I'm I've got the recording rolling. I smashed the button and we're gonna dive right in. And uh I'm honored to have Chip, your dad on here. Why don't you introduce your dad for everybody? Well this will be the only time you're allowed to talk during this whole thing. That that's fine. So <laughs> this this is the original Chip Kozier. We used to say that the big Chip Kozier, but that got passed up about 20 years ago, I think. But uh, this is my dad. He's the one that um, ran Joy for, I don't know, how long? 30 years? Yeah, somewhere around there. Um, and he was the one that was instrumental in really getting us involved in the hound world in the first place. So Yeah, so we got Big Chip and we got your, little your chip. nickname. Was we got Little Chip. Should have been Cow Chip. He's so full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> no it's been a pleasure getting to know your son uh mr Kozier. i appreciate it and um i'm i'm gonna call you mr Kozier so that little chip understands who i'm talking to here because i'll probably forget to say forget to say the big and the little part um uh, but why don't we uh why don't we talk about i we had Wade Grasswitz on and gave us the, the story of Joy Dog Food um, since High Standard purchased Joy. But there's still, I think there is still a lot of misconceptions and people hanging on to the Joy Dog Food of the, you know, late 90s, early 2000 era and kind of dispel some of those rumors and, and talk about what happened with Joy Dog Food during that time. But let's start with your dad. Um, started the, the company in 1946. Is that correct? 1945, actually him and a fellow by the name of Ab Schiffler, they started it and they were in the, they were in the farm feed business originally in, in, in the forties. Uh, and actually their, their entry into the market was in the tri-state area, Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia. They had, uh, 18 or 20 feed stores and they manufactured farm feed and of course they sold a uh, a full line of feed store type items to the to the local farmers and the concept was if we get the farmers coming and buying our feed uh, we'll keep our margins relatively slim on the feed but then we'll get them to come back and buy their fertilizer and some of their implements and their seed and that type of thing and the business grew from there uh, in 1952, 1953, uh, they started using some common ingredients they were using in farm feeds and uh, actually started uh, mixing a dog food blend with a shovel on the floor of the feed mill. Uh, no kidding. It, yeah, put it in sacks, tied it with a, you know, tied it with a miller's knot, took a, took a grease pencil, put the name uh at that time actually it was skippy dog food besco okay. and skippy dog food uh that write that with a grease pencil and my dad uh had a buddy of his uh, take a flatbed truck they they had uh sitting around the mill and he actually built a dog house on the back of the uh, the feed truck uh, you, instead of having an, an enclosed uh box truck they actually built a dog house that you could haul three four ton of dog food at a time and he went around to all a, these little country go, go have ahead you got a pic have you got a picture of that old truck anywhere do you have a copy of do you have a copy of the 
joy history that we put together in 95? No, I do not. Chip, bring that with you to the Grand American this week if you can. I'll do that. Um, yeah. The, there's some photos in there. Uh, there's some other photos in there. Matter of fact, there was a time when we had the salesman running around with uh, an old station wagons with uh, a hand-painted uh, Joy Dog Food banner that was that was uh, bolted to the top of the station wagons that they ran around with. But uh, <laughs> he, went, he went around and went to the country stores. At that time, a lot of your your grocery stores, you didn't have supermarkets. You had grocery stores. He'd go around those country stores and and give them a, a line about this dog food that they had and ask them if he could put a few bags in there. And uh, he'd come around in a couple of weeks, and if they sold it, they could pay for it. And if they didn't sell it, he'd pick it up and carry it and get it out of their way. And, and so that's, how, that's how it started. I got a couple of questions. So if they're mixing this on the floor of the mill with a shovel, what did the original dog food look like? How to, was it in nuggets like it is now or how no, did it go? What you would have is, is some of it was a fine meal, uh, very similar consistency to corn meal. And of course your feed mills at that time had pellet mills. And then mm -hmm. the, and what the pellet was, is you took ingredients and it actually went through a, a, a pressed pellet mill and it, and it produced a hard pellet. And to get your meat products, you had to use a pellet mill, obviously. And mm -hmm. they would use they would use rendered meat and bone meal. And they would use that in their some of their chicken feeds and, and other animal feeds as well. Uh, certainly the, the balanced nutrition wasn't wasn't what it wasn't at the way it is today or even the way it was 30 or 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, they started that and then in turn, uh, in the early 50s, actually, Prina developed the first uh, extruder for dog food. Okay. Uh, and that, that an extruder produces a product similar to what you see out there today. Uh, we didn't have an extruder, but we had a uh, uh, an apparatus called a, a, a kibbler, and you could take uh, grain products, and you could run them through there, and it would actually make a... Uh, it would be like a grape nut, grape nut cereal, but it would be about a quarter inch in diameter. And you'd meet, mix that with the meat pellet. And that was the old Joy Kibble. And that's what they started out with. But in 1950, early in 54, uh, they were selling a product for a couple of years in printed bags called Skippy. Mm -hmm. uh, General Foods at that time, and I don't know if they still do, they had a trademark Skippy for peanut butter and right. they became offended that you know some little upstart outfit out of uh, Pennsylvania was using their name and they threatened to uh to sue best feeds who was the who was the company and uh my dad and Ab Schiffler sat down and it was going to cost them five thousand dollars to retain an attorney to try to fight with General Foods and they didn't have five thousand dollars right so Ab Schiffler had, uh, they raised dachshunds and he had a, uh, a bitch that had produced some pretty nice pups named Joy. And so they decided one night sitting in Ab's kitchen, actually they were using Mrs. Schiffler's stove to conjure up some dog food mixes. And they, <laughs> decided, they decided to change the name to Joy. 
And in 54, they started marketing the dog food as Joy Dog Food. And the farm feed was still the big deal at that time, not the dog food. But they were able to get this Joy Dog Food into some of the little grocery chains and that throughout uh, the tri-state area and then on down into Virginia and uh, developed it from there. For many years, the primary business was the old line country wholesalers. Once again, you didn't have very many right. supermarkets in the fifties and that was, that was their entree. They, they eventually uh, hired a few guys that were salesmen and what they would do is they'd go out, spend a week in a given territory, whether it was down around Richmond, Virginia, or it was uh, up in New York state or even New Jersey. And they would spend a week going around to all the customers and actually writing orders at the end on Friday, they'd go in and, and turn the orders into the, to the, uh, the manager of the, uh, wholesale house and they'd put together an order for dog food. And a lot okay, of, I got, I've got some questions when you get, go ahead. when you get a chance. So back in the old, old, I, I started hunting in the early eighties and was around a lot of the old time houndsmen. And they always talked about grinding corn or going to the mill and getting dog bread. And, and so was that basically the same concept that your dad and Ab Schiffler started with on the floor of that mill was, was trying to take some of that technology and build on it. Did they have other customers that were coming in and, and mixing dog bread and, and just thinking, man, we got to come up with a dog food. Well, most the, the one big difference was, most of those guys that were, were mixing hung rules, if you will, you know, or dog, dog cookies or dog cakes or dog bread or whatever the case might be in order to use their meats. In many cases, they were getting, they were getting scraps from the butcher shop, mm -hmm. but it, it didn't, it wasn't very stable. I mean, you had to feed it within the next few days or it would go rancid. And right. obviously that wasn't good for the dog. So that became a constant thing. And a lot of those, I remember guys cooking up their, their home gruel in a cauldron, you know, that they'd have a pot sitting outside and have some. Describe what was in that. It would have, it would have meat scraps. It would have fat. Of course you wanted fat for some energy. And in a lot of cases they would use cornmeal. Mm -hmm. uh, once again, it all depends on what was available in certain parts of the country. Cornmeal was, was much more prevalent than wheat middlings or, or ground wheat. You know, when you got out in the Midwest, wheat was much more prevalent than the, than corn at that time. And they'd mix that. They'd, in some cases, they'd come up with a few vitamins that, that were used, being used for cattle or sheep or whatever the case might be. And they'd throw some of that in. And I'm sure a few of those guys, you know, they had some some secret home stuff that, that, that they'd try to mix in there and they would try to develop formula, but consistency wasn't there. Obviously stability wasn't there. Mm -hmm. uh, they were constantly having to cook dog food. And that was a, that was a problem they had. The one thing advantage that we had is whenever you were using uh, meat and bone meal that was rendered, it, it had stabilizer on it to keep that fat from going rancid. Now, in the early days, that rancidity would be deterred for maybe a month or two, you know, uh, as things have developed. Now you have products that are 
even if it's high fat, it's it's stable for a couple of years. But early on, that wasn't the case. But what they were able to do is obviously they had ingredients available that the guy wouldn't have available on the farm or in his kennel. Or, and they were able to blend that. And because they were buying ingredients for other purposes, they had sources that you wouldn't have if you were just doing it yourself. So exactly. that's, that's what they did. Uh, the one thing that, that, that Perina did when they come out with that extruder was you were able to take your grain type ingredients and your meat ingredients, and you were able to combine those into us into the same piece of dog food. And that, that was obviously a big advantage. You didn't have two different types of particles because you would get some dogs that would pick out one versus the other. And actually early on, it wasn't common for dogs to ever be fed dry dog food. Number one, it wasn't very tasty. And number two is it, it didn't have a, a composition that, that worked well for the dogs. People used to feed their dogs. And if the dogs didn't eat it in the first 15 or 20 minutes, you pulled the pan. Right. Because you're worried about it going sour. Mm-hmm. So that technology developed in the... Late- so, so from... From my standpoint, what I'm seeing and what I'm imagining, because all I can do is imagine this process, what you're telling me is the dog food industry developed into a consistent pellet where you're trying to uh, get the same amount of meat base, grain base, everything into an individual kibble so the so the dog can't go through and just pick out the cracklings or just whatever he's going to eat. Is that well, is that accurate? Yes. And plus, even from the standpoint of on the manufacturing side, if you have different size pieces or different shape pieces, think about it and you have it in a bin and you're bringing it down to a bagger. And the same as with anything, those pieces would start separating. You'd get more of one or more of the other. So to get that consistency, it was it was much better if it was all in the same in the same shape and the same size. But in the 50s, prior prior to probably 1956, 1957, the the highest fat dog food that was available was about 5% fat. Now, if you think about the products you have today, 5% fat is very much. So obviously there was a lot of supplementation going on. And actually, uh, Ab Schiffler, the the guy that was in it with my dad, uh, he did some research on the human side and and they find a product called BHA. Now you don't use BHA today because, uh, be it real or be it fantasy, supposedly it has all kinds of health causing gremlins. You know, if you see, it's like GMOs. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but but what that allows to do is, Joy was the first dog food to have a seven percent fat product, and that was the cat's meow early on, and. <clears throat> you're able to build from that. Obviously, you went through a bunch of different uh, processes. You went the consumer need changed. Many of the many of the the houndsmen at that time were still doing supplements. Uh, as a matter mm-hmm. of fact, to give you an example, the the greyhound world, they were still using supplements in the late nineties. And what those supplements, what they consist of? Biggest, biggest thing would be fats and vitamins. Mm-hmm. And what they were trying to do is do the same thing that athletes do is, you know, supercharge a little bit. Uh, so 
the dog food yeah. companies, we, they went through a metamorphosis, if you will, uh, where we became very prominent in the, in the working dog or the hunting dog world would have been in the early seventies. At that time, we had a product called, uh, chunks of joy, which was, a uh, 25% protein and 8% fat food. And that was pretty good. And we had a joy, kibble. Yeah. We had a joy kibble that was a, that was a 26 and seven. And we had this product called uh, joy meal. That was a 26% protein and 7% fat. Initially the push was towards protein as opposed to, mm-hmm. uh, towards, I remember towards, those days towards fat. We had a sled dog customer up in new England and that had won the world championship a couple times. And he said, can you do something that has a little bit more fat? Mm-hmm. So we piddled around with it. And this was actually before I was involved in the company, I was still in high school and they figured out a way to get 10% fat and have it number one, get it consistently on the consistently on the product at the same time, keep it stabilized. And that was, that was, um, we had a joy meal, 7% and a 10%. The, the 10% was very, very minimal as far as manufacturing. Just because there wasn't that high of a demand for it or because yeah, people just weren't feeding it. And your typical houndsman at the time was more concentrating on protein than he was fat. Right. And if you looked at the industry as a whole, what you had is you had Prina child that was, was dog child that was a 25 and eight. You mm-hmm. had Wayne dog food, which was very prominent at the time. It was a 25 and eight. You had Casco dog food that was a right. 26 and eight. Uh, and then you had a whole bunch of other brands, but, but that was pretty much the high end dog food. Mm-hmm. Uh, Casco actually came out with a Casco meal that was 10% after we had the 10% fat product, but, but they were actually marketing it to the Hosman. The disadvantage they had, it was still in a meal form like cornmeal, which, Oh, no kidding. Which you couldn't feed it. You couldn't feed it dry very well. Right. Um, so in the early seventies, we started transitioning for a time making private label grocery product was, mm-hmm. a, was a big part of our business. Uh, one time it was making up 50 or 60% of our business and Prina Chow had gone through a, a process where their primary grocery product, Prina Chow had gone from a 25% protein to a 23% protein and was now a 21% protein and 8% fat that became the standard in the grocery industry. And of course, mm. that's what all these private label grocery outfits, they wanted their brand comparable to, to Purina Chow. Uh, coincidentally, at that time, I was in high school, I was still working in our, our feed stores and we handled Purina dog food. We handled Wayne dog food. And it was sort of, <clears throat> it was sort of funny in the early 70s, as Purina started reducing the, the uh, nutrient content in their Purina Chow, suddenly they came out with Purina Puppy Chow. And it was a 26% protein and 10% fat. And based on research at their research kennels and this type of thing, you know, this was the ideal puppy food. You shouldn't be feeding that, that, that high protein, high fat food to your adult dogs. 
<laughs> now, now, of course, that gave them a product that was suitable for puppies, even though Prina Chow was their, their benchmark product. What we did then in the mid-70s is when we really started getting involved. Our first involvement with working dogs or competition dogs, if you will, there was obviously some coon dog business. Uh, Deer Hines down in the Carolinas right. was a big business for us. Uh, some of the, the, the fox hunt, the field trial fox hunt people, uh, they were involved, but we did a lot of sled dog business up in New England. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and we did a lot of business with field trial beagle people at that time. That, that was field trial beagles was a big deal. I think, I think one of the things that maybe we could talk about just a little bit is a transition from, you know, in the 1950s, what would you say the percentage of dogs were that were considered working dogs? I mean, you look at 2021, you got fat dogs laying on couches and everybody's got a dog and all of, none of them have a daggone job. And in 1950 people, did they normally keep dogs around just for pets or did that dog need to have a job? Well, I think, I think the thing was number one, you didn't even, we didn't even, we didn't even think about the people that had city dogs. Okay. Yeah. If they had city dogs, it was either a guard dog or it was just a dog running around the house. And the other thing was you had a high percentage of dogs that weren't purebreds. There, right. was, a, there was a whole lot of mutts out there that actually, mm -hmm. there was some mutts that turned into some pretty good hunting dogs. Right. As a matter of fact, some of them became breeds, but, uh, in the, in the, in the rural areas, you had urban and you had rural, you didn't really have suburbia back then. Mm -hmm. And, and in the rural areas, there was always dogs. Okay. Right. Now they might be dogs that just ran around the farm. They might be dogs that they're using to work cattle or sheep with. Okay. And a lot of times those dogs just ran around come fall. They became hunting dogs, you know, yeah. and of course, you know, rabbits were prevalent at that time. Everybody grew up small game hunting, you know, today right. in many parts of the country, you'd be hard pressed to, to find a brush pile with a rabbit under it anywhere. And you certainly can't find any pheasant or quail. Right. <laughs> but you know what, what I've seen, what I've seen is a transition from a utilitarian use for a dog. I mean, even when I was a kid, Chip, it was a deal where we have, we had a dog and had a farm and we expected that dog. He lived outside and he had a job and it didn't matter if there was a fox coming around the chicken house that's what he was there for if if we went to the creek to to run a trap line he went with us and you know kept kept critters at bay or whatever you know i mean that was the life that i even grew up with through the 70s and 80s and this whole conversation leads into my next question of of when did you start seeing the shift from utilitarian use of a dog to having a larger pet market in the dog food industry. Probably more so in the, in the, the separation, I believe occurred mostly in the, in the sixties and mm -hmm. actually towards the latter part of the sixties. Uh, and, and all, although some of the competition areas, especially among the, the Beagle people was very sophisticated, even back in the, in the late fifties, in, in, in the early 60s, uh, 
but once again, you were talking about guys at that time and, and totally different than the, than the coon dog world. You had guys that had kennels that maybe had 20 or 30 brood bitches and four or five advertised stud dogs. Mm. And they'd raise 50, 60, 70, in some cases, a hundred pups a year. Uh, which is obviously different than, than the world that we're talking about in the coon dog world where if a guy has three or four good gyps and a stud dog, maybe an older stud dog and one that they feel is coming on, uh, that's a coon dog kennel. Now, right. Yeah. People had more dogs. They had more space. Uh, they had more land to hunt on. You know, there was, I remember when we first started, working with folks out in the, in the Midwest, you know, you'd, you'd go coon hunting and you'd never leave the guy's farm. You know, even if you had a dog that covered some distance, well, obviously right. that's not the case. Uh, probably the, the most dramatic one. And I know it's not the, our primary topic today was, I remember the, uh, the Fox hunt field, field trial people. Uh, they had their big championship done in Lorenberg, North Carolina every year. Well, they let 450 dogs loose off the table right. at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and one of the places where they cast dogs was Dead Dog Road because five or six years before that, they mistimed the, the, when the train was coming through. And there was 50 dogs killed in five minutes because there was a pack of 200 foxhounds a quarter mile away from the railroad track that ran in front of the train. Wow. <laughs> As it was coming down a track because the train had been delayed an hour. Uh, and obviously that, that was crazy. I mean, there was guys riding horses and riding them pretty hard, just keeping up with the pack. I remember one day sitting on the, on a hillside overlooking a cotton field and we saw the Fox come through and here comes 75 or 80 dogs on their tail and they hadn't harvested the cotton yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about a whirlwind, I mean, because yeah. the cotton was ready to pick. So they weren't doing in a pen at that point in time. They were doing out. Oh, outside. yeah. Yeah, there was. Yeah, the, the pens were a new phenomena and they were running on the outside. And here comes 80 dogs running through a 100 acre cotton field that was ready to be picked and just cotton flying everywhere. I mean, I one bet of that their, made them popular. Well, one of their big issues every year was play, paying for damage. Right. At the national. Right. there's been a lot of changes that's for sure so when did when did joy dog food realize uh, at what point in your business did did they did joy dog food realize that these are our people because one of the things that that has drawn me to joy when i started hunting in the early 80s joy was still big um you would see advertisements with joy sponsoring huge events in the magazines and different things like that. When did Joy realize that, hey, we need to take care of this market? Briar Creek Kennels is your complete hound hunting outfitter. Boots, lights, collars, and tracking equipment. Dog boxes, kennel supplies, collars, clothes, squalors. Whew! They have it all. Briar Creek Kennel is a Garmin and dog tree dealer. Owner Chris Girth will ensure Briar Creek Kennel customers will get top of the industry customer service. Whether you purchase from their website or you find them at a major coonhound event, 
Chris and his staff will share expert knowledge and experience about every product they offer. Chris Girth is a top competitor and breeder of hounds. He knows what gear you need to be successful. Look for Briar Creek Kennels on the web for a complete online store or look at their fully stocked trailer at any major coonhound event. Briar Creek Kennels, offering a hound hunting public generations of excellence. Mid-70s, about 1970. I got out of school in 75. Mm-hmm. Um, got to work actively in early 76 with the dog food side of it. Initially, I worked with our with our grain purchasing department, trading grain, soybean, and wheat mm-hmm. and this type of thing uh, with a grain broker working through the Chicago Board of Trade. Came to work at, at actually at the office, and a lot of our business at that time was that private label grocery business. And I started making okay. some of those. My dad had developed that business. I started working with some of those people. And we had an arrangement with a couple of our biggest customers. At that time, a big customer was somebody who bought a thousand ton. And basically, the arrangement that we worked with them for a number of years, and it was successful both ways, is four times a year, we'll come up with a promotion that you could run in your grocery ad on Wednesdays. Back back then, everything was newspaper advertising, and would work with you, and would pick would pick a product uh, and a size. Might be a twenty five pound size, might be a five pound size. And what we would do is we would agree that for a thirty or forty day period of time, we would sell to them that individual item at cost. Now they would pay our regular margins on the rest of the line. But we would do that four times a year. But the rest of the time, they merchandised our product like it was their own product. We made money. They made money. Well, it got to the point where there was a whole bunch of other people getting in a private label business. And everybody Mm -hmm. was cutting everybody's throat. And it got to the point where they weren't satisfied with you making money eight months a year. And just breaking even four months of the year because somebody else was willing to swoop in and give them the deal. And of course, you had a, although we all had formulas, but the end result, the 21 and 8 product in most cases, everybody could make a 21 and 8 chunk style dog food. And that's what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And the manufacturers would purchase their pack, the packaging. So we would buy packaging under these for these labels. And all of a sudden you start getting to the point where you get instructions from your customer to ship 5,000 25 pound chunk bags to another manufacturer. So we got to the point where in some cases the same bags got shipped back and forth between the same pet food manufacturer and, and we weren't making any money. Right. Right. And I was, I was making a call on our biggest customer at that time. And I sat down with a fellow by the name of Jim Charlie, the Charlie brothers. And I said, you know, this isn't working. Here's what we need to do. And he said, well, that's not the way it is. We're going to buy where we can buy it the cheapest. Mm-hmm. And I, and he was our biggest customer. We were only doing 12,000 ton a year at the time. And he was over a thousand ton of it. 
And I said, well, we're not willing to do that. And he says, well, we'll just see. I'll just call your dad. Well, mm-hmm. we call my, call my dad and be it good or bad at the time. My dad said, well, if Chip feels that that's right, that's I'm going to stick by whatever his word was. Well, less than a year later, they quit. Well, all of a sudden, they quit. Another one quit. All of a sudden, there's 30 or 40% of our business gone. Wow. We were still doing business with some, some of these old line wholesalers. And we started focusing more and more on the Hans trade. At that time, the product you were familiar with was the 26 and 10 Joy Special Meal. Came in that green and yellow bag. Yep, the John Deere bag. Okay, and that was that Joy Meal that we originally had developed for those sled dog guys. And we started pushing the idea of, you know, the right balance, 26% protein, 10% fat. Mm-hmm. We started featuring that product versus the old kibble and the, and the chunks. And we started feeding hunts and trials. Just get it out to the people. Well, it happened to be that dogs. What do you, were, what do you mean by that? I, what do you mean? By, how did, how did you feed the trials? What did well, that look like? in the case, in the case of Beagle trials, it was, it was customary when they had a trial, the dog food manufacturer would, would provide the food for the four day event. Okay. Now okay. A, a big Beagle trial you could feed for three or four, three or 400 pound of dog food. Okay. And would yeah. make the dog food available. Then it, 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 as our popularity improved, it got to the point where we said, you know what, we aren't going to beat our head against the wall and have four or five other dog food manufacturers in there. If you want us to take care of your trial. And at that time we were also providing all of their printed supplies. And in, in their case, it was their judges books and their field trial uh, their break, what they called their brace books and their heat sheets and all this type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And we said, if you want us providing all this stuff, we'll do it for free. But we don't want anybody else's food on the grounds during the event. Right. And some people squawked about it and some people didn't squawk about it. Well, finally got to the point where if it was an event that we weren't feeding because of the popularity of our product, the only pro- other product at that time, that was in the same category nutrition wise was Prina high pro that was considerably more expensive. Mm-hmm. And in that old Casco meal, which wasn't very good if you wanted to do anything right. to feed it wet. And it got to the point where a lot of the prominent people, if joy wasn't feeding the event, they, they started buying joy and carrying it with them. And obviously that had a positive effect on, the other people sure. that experienced that. And that's where it developed. And initially it was a lot with the Beagle people and then it would spin off because our business at that time was pretty much relegated to the East coast. If we wanted to go West, we had to ship by rail. And that's obviously a much bigger inconvenience than shipping by truck. We so, also- the business, so the business model was let's get into these, these events, these competition events, let these guys see how their hounds perform on it. And then after they leave, they find joy and they become a joy customer. Right. Up until that nice. time, the focus was, was on the supply side, find, mm-hmm. find the, find the wholesale house, find the retailer and push the product in front of the customers. And hopefully they pick it up and they like it. 
by by starting to work with events, be it beagles or coon dogs or whatever the case might be, our focus then was we're going to create the demand, mm-hmm. and hopefully we can find somebody that's close enough to them where they can get the dog food. So we took some of those old line wholesalers, and we made them distributors. And in exchange for distribution, is then at that time we gave them a protected territory. We actually, I still have a, a map here that has, I don't know, 30 or 40 states on it. We were distributing at the time that actually had lines on the map. Yeah. And, and in exchange for us giving them protection, they didn't cross the line. No, right. it was crazy. I mean, there was, you talk about trying to police this thing. There was times when you had a couple aggressive distributors and they'd have a feed store on one side of the of a of a of a county road because the county road was a line selling four or five ton of dog food every month. And on the other side of the road, there was an old country gas and grocery store selling four or five ton of dog joy dog food. But they didn't they didn't cross they didn't cross that road even so though you they guys were like you guys were like the godfathers of dog food. Everybody <laughs> had to stand their territories and and all that sort of stuff. But, but what that did is that developed an opportunity for guys to get in the dog food business that would have never been in the dog food business. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, the biggest customer we ever had uh, during my time was a guy down in Eastern North Carolina by the name of Donald Warren that, that sold a few coon dog supplies and deer hunt supplies. Donald's still a dealer today. Yeah. He's a dealer today. Donald wow. went, Donald went from, buying five ton of dog food, putting it in a shed to at one point he sold 2,800 ton of dog food in one year. Wow. So you'd find a guy like that, uh, from the PKC side in the, in the eighties, Nick DiGiacomo, who was a, a director with Jarvis early on, Nick DiGiacomo was retired from the air force. Mm-hmm. And he had access to a building and, him and my dad were talking one day and we had guys out in Oklahoma at that time, mostly coon hunt guys <clears throat> that want to enjoy dog food. Well, shoot. The closest thing we had was Tennessee. Yeah. And Nick says, how are we going to get dog food? And dad said, well, you know what, Nick, you got plenty of money. You're retired from the military and your wife works. Why don't you just buy a trailer load of dog food? So mm-hmm. we shipped them a trailer load of dog food. And one year, you know, uh, Nick sold seven or eight hundred ton of dog food. Uh, Bill Lukey down in down in in Texas. It was the same thing. We didn't have any distribution in Texas, but mm-hmm. we we went out and we bought the the permits for our truck so we could deliver to Texas. And eventually, we were going as far as New Mexico delivering out of Pittsburgh. No kidding. And running That's our own running our own trucks. You didn't do it with a common carrier because once again, and this was probably a mistake that I made is. You didn't want any outside forces having control over your product. Mm-hmm. So we ran our own trucks. You know, one time our trucks were running, I don't know, we had 15 trucks, each of them running <coughs> over 100,000 miles a year, doing nothing but delivering joy dog food. And we were running 35 states. Yeah. And some, yeah. And, and many of these guys, uh, North Carolina one year, we had five distributors. We sold 11,000 ton of dog food in the state of North Carolina one year. What year would that have been? Early 80s? Just no, general. no, that would have been mid-90s. 
that would that would have been mid nineties. Um, so what you did is you you developed a framework where a guy could become a dog food distributor. In some cases, yeah. a pretty good sized business. In in many cases, they didn't have any business background. They didn't have a business relationship. Would sit down with them and come up with a plan for them to go to the bank to borrow the money to come up with the first eight thousand dollars they needed for a trailer of dog food. And it and it grew it grew from there. We first got involved any to any serious degree with the coon dog world, probably as far as big events, probably the grand American was the first good size event. And we're mm -hmm. still involved today. And obviously we don't do that exclusively. That was UKC and Perina owned UKC at that time. Right. UKC owned Perina, uh, <laughs> if you will. That, that was a tough world for us to get into. And when we first got involved with PKC, we only had one distributor in Eastern Kentucky and we only had one distributor in central Tennessee. We had none in Mississippi. We had nothing beyond that, that area. And of course we know that's BKC's world down there. It wasn't Michigan and Pennsylvania and New York. That was UKC world. And I believe our first serious involvement in the Midwest was probably with the old ACHA. Before we get to all of that, I want to get to, I want to get to that part too, but one of the main questions or one of the main comments I see when somebody goes on social media and asks about joy dog food, you commonly see people say, yeah, I fed it back in the early nineties and then something happened to it and they either couldn't get it or the quality went down in around the year 2000 or so. And it kind of fell off the radar for houndsmen. What happened to joy dog food during that time? My mistake. I wasn't trying to call you out. I just no, wanted to, no. It was yeah. absolutely it was absolutely my mistake. I was making the calls, and and we had products that we knew that worked. Okay. Mm -hmm. Probably the the biggest thing that kicked that was whenever all of a sudden you had the emergence of a twenty six percent protein, eighteen percent fat product. Mm -hmm. And that would have been diamond. Okay. okay. Uh, and then you had some other manufacturers pick up the same mantra. At that time, from a nutrition standpoint and a formula standpoint, I had some le legitimate concerns about how we could get to a 26% protein. If you use too much meat as your protein source, it had some problems. Okay. And the mm -hmm. big thing was with meat and bone meal, because you got bone along with it. If, if you got too much bone, your calcium phosphorus ratio got out of whack. And if your calcium and phosphorus ratio was out of whack, the body couldn't absorb the full, the full menu of, of nutrients, if you will. We had a product uh, called joy high pro at that time, which was a 24 and 18. Mm -hmm. And we still had the special meal, 2610. People used that. But our answer to Diamond was high pro, high, what we call joy, high protein or high performance. And it was, a, it was a 24 and 18. I still believe to this day, 
from a from an available nutrition standpoint, what a dog could get, they could get more out of that than they did the competitors twenty six and eighteen. But the popularity with the hunting dog people became became the numbers. They wanted okay. that high, they wanted that higher higher fat and the higher protein. Let's talk about those higher numbers because that's what you always see whenever uh, the dog food conversation comes up automatically. Uh, and I think a lot of it is just listening to chatter. All of a sudden, when you start talking about dog food, people become nutrition experts, but the only thing they can talk about is the numbers. 2618, this is 2420, this is 3232, blah, blah, blah. But from what I'm hearing you say, what, what I'm hearing you say is when you get into that 26% protein in those days, you were looking at absorption rates for the actual nutrients and the type of protein you were using, you were getting undigestible protein at that time. Is that, is that accurate? Right. And, and part of the misconception was that, that a dog couldn't digest vegetable protein. Mm-hmm. Now, the one thing that we that we used more so than most of the competitors was corn gluten meal. Corn gluten meals, which the byproduct after you draw off cornstarch and the corn oil <coughs> is much more valuable than than the, than the byproduct. Corn meal, corn gluten meal was ninety three percent digestible. It was more digestible than meat and bone meal. Mm-hmm. And, and matter of fact. Uh, in the old days, the Joy Special Meal had sort of a, a goldish brown color, where a lot of the competitors was more of a brown color. Well, right. where, that, where that gold color came from was the corn gluten meal. Uh, actually, it was the same thing Purdue did whenever they came out and they started marketing uh, chickens with yellow flesh. They tried to tell you it came from marigolds or it came from chrysanthemums. Sorry, I have trouble with that word. Uh but the reality was they were using corn gluten meal because it would actually turn the flesh yellow. Right. Uh, the fat one, was yellow. I remember the yellow mm-hmm. fat. Days yeah. And matter of fact, we experimented with some catfish foods when we had the Missouri, Missouri plant, great catfish foods, great yield, great weight gain. And all of a sudden they processed the catfish and they couldn't sell it because they had yellow flesh because we, wow. were, using, we were using corn gluten meal. People didn't want yellow catfish flesh. Yeah. But so that that was a mistake I made, even though I felt we were sacrificing a little bit nutrition wise, I probably should have chased. I should have developed a particular product, not necessarily the full line, chasing those numbers. Be- and part of it, I think, maybe had to do with being in it for a while. I remember when people were blasting us because we had a 10 percent fat product instead of seven because it's say it makes the dogs too hot you'll get hot exactly. you'll get hot spots okay i mean that that was a big thing that we had to fight with the 10 percent fat special meal mm-hmm. in many cases it, it's going to cause hot spots well the reality is hot spots don't come from the dog food good dog food will help you repair a hot spot or help prevent it in most cases, is going to come from a flea bite, <laughs> and, and yeah. the dog and the dog trying to chase the flea around its body. But that was a mistake I made. Now, as we got closer to two thousand, and we developed what we called the Joy High Energy, which was a twenty four twenty. We lowered the protein to twenty four, 
that kept that kept us okay in my mind from the standpoint of where we were at as far as the amount of meat that you had to use. The other thing was is the ability to stabilize fat and the quality of fat had improved to where you could do it. Plus the other thing was, is early on, it was pretty hard to get more than 10 or 12% fat on the product because it goes, it does, part of it goes on about five or 6% is internal in the product. Mm -hmm. The rest of it has to be sprayed on it. Well, is it, is it's going through a web belt on in a sprayer when you think about it, and it goes through a tumbler, the more fat you're putting on, more product per minute's going through, the more fat per minute's going through. Right. And, and as soon as fat gets cool, it's Get to- it starts building up. Okay. Right. And it, it's, yeah. it, it clogged up your equipment. I mean, when we were first started making 20% fat food, we had certain bins that we couldn't use because you couldn't get the product out of the bins. It, Just it, greasy. Yeah, if it just solidified again. Yeah, if it wasn't a free falling bin where it came right smack dab out of the bottom, if it had an angle to it, that fat would build up, and you'd spend more time cleaning out the pipes than than you did packing the dog food. Wow! So so that that was an a a mistake that I made. At the same time, the distributor network had evolved to the point where their customer base was not exclusive to the working dog world. Mm-hmm. They had broadened their availability of product. We had a product called joy maintenance. Okay. And there's st- still a lot of it sold today. And it went through a metamorphosis. It went from a 21 six. Once again, they wanted a low end product to go along with their, quote, unquote, good dog foods, okay? And a lot of the country stores and, and matter of fact, that guy in eastern North Carolina, uh, he'd put pallets of it in the food lines. You couldn't get into food line without paying for the slot. Well, he'd go into a food line store and say, you know what? Um, you need to have this product. And they'd say, no, we don't. Well, he'd park the truck in the parking lot and sell eight or ten ton of dog food in the parking lot on a weekend. And all of a sudden, the customers are telling that store manager, you know what? I'd rather get Joy Dog Food in my shopping cart. So yeah. they'd let them put a pallet right by the cash register. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to wait until next month when the Joy Dog Food truck's back. Go ahead and get that in here all the time. Yeah, he might not be here next month, you know, whatever right, the case right. might be. So, yeah. so that, that group of customers pushed towards that type of product. To a certain degree, their focus then became a higher volume market. And once again, your working dog market was not as high a volume market as for lack of a better term, the semi working pet market, if if you will. Okay. Right. Sure. Well, I can, I can remember the day we had golden retrievers um, later on and well, I guess we had them pretty much the whole time. We had a couple there, but you know, for, it was unheard of for my, there's no way my dad would have paid $30 for a bag of dog food in 1980 to feed his dog. And what we see now is the marketing side of the dog food where people with dogs that have no job, they're not even breeding stock. They're just a fur baby. 
and people are paying $80 a bag for 40 pounds of dog food from Chewy because that's where the, the market is. So when we see that transition away from the working dog world, how did that affect you? Houndsman XP is very proud of our partnership with the organization Freedom Hunters. Freedom Hunters is a nonprofit organization that takes America's veterans hunting from field to field, from the battlefield to a field near you when you volunteer your time to take America's warriors hunting with you and your hounds. It's easy. Go to houndsmanxp.com, click on the partnership tab, and it will take you to Freedom Hunters. You can go direct to their website to make donations at freedomhunters.org. Support America's heroes. Let's pay it back. Visit Freedom Hunters at freedomhunters.org or go to houndsmanxp.com and you can find them on our website from field to field. Hey folks, while we're talking about Freedom Hunters, here's an announcement for you. If you are going to be at the SHOT Show in Las Vegas, Nevada between January 17th and January 21st, I will be there working the booth with Freedom Hunters. Stop by, check us out, and hope to meet you at the SHOT Show. Stop by and see what we're all about. Also, I wanted to give a shout out to my friends Kevin and Nancy Hall at Dogs Are Treed. They have got some great products out there. You need to be checking out their, their products made for houndsmen by houndsmen. The highest quality in the industry, I guarantee it. And the customer service is unbelievable. They have got several items that are essentials for houndsmen, starting with their tieouts. These tieouts are high quality. Everywhere I go, everywhere I hunt, every camp that I'm set up at, people are constantly asking me about that tie-out and how they get one. And you can get one at dogsartree.com. But you can look at their medical kits, high-quality stuff designed for houndsmen. Dogs are hydrated. Keep those hounds running when it's most important. Keep them hydrated. Dogs are hydrated. Paws are protected. It's all there, folks. And if you go to their website at dogsartreed.com and enter the code HXP 20% off at checkout, that's all capital letters, you will get 20% off of your entire order. Join us on Patreon and we will give you an exclusive offer for deeper discounts and an opportunity to win these products in our annual drawings. Check out Dogs Are Treat at dogsartreed.com. Go there today. You'll be glad you did. Well, I think the other I think the other thing that happened was people with the working dogs, you know, the guy that used to keep 15 or 20 coon dogs around, mm-hmm. he now had five. Right. You know, think about the, the typical guy in the eighties and nineties in the PKC world, let's say if that guy was, if that would not cotton pups, if that guy was keeping more than four or five adult dogs at home, that was typical. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't, you didn't have guys with 20 or 30 or 40 dogs. So obviously their, their concern in some cases was their involvement with a, with a dog sport was a, was a hobby in most cases. Some guys made a big living out of it. But most guys, it, it was a hobby. So it was coming out of their recreation dollar. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if he had five dogs instead of 15 dogs, he could afford to more, pay more for a bag of dog food. 
mm-hmm. and not spend any more money. Right. So right. that that transition happened. The other thing that's happened with dog food is you've got just as, as you do with human food and everything else, you got so much BS out there when it comes to, to dog nutrition. Right. You know, whenever we first started in it, dog nutrition was an unknown. There had been most of the studies had been done with chickens and hogs, not dogs. I read something the other day that said that dog food is high, more highly regulated by the FDA than human food is now. When did the FDA regulation start to affect dog food production? I was I was actually on the board of the Pet Food Institute, which was the national organization when FDA first got involved and they had a through APHIS, which is the agricultural uh, regulating arm, if you will. And, and APHIS had individual state departments. Okay. And they would, they would be the ones that would, would test the formulas on dog food in this type. I'm sorry, not test the formulas, test the analysis their purpose mm -hmm. was analysis. But then FDA basically strong-armed APHIS to become involved. And all of a sudden, of you, all of a sudden it, you became involved. And although FDA was not regulating dog food, they were starting to regulate the ingredients. Mm -hmm. A lot of the ingredients were becoming ingredients that were shared by the human food side. So that was, that was FDA's, angled it to get their nose into our business i'm from the government and i'm here to help right instead of being <laughs> instead of dog food now being an agricultural product it was becoming a food product as a matter of fact what year was that roughly early 90s yeah uh as a matter of fact at that time uh, I, I got criticism from some people because I still referred to to, uh, to our product as feeding dogs. Okay, and it's and and I was chastised in some cases. We don't make dog feed; we make dog food. Oh, okay. You feed cat. You feed cattle. Cattle feed and yeah, hog exactly, feed. Exactly right. Feed. Exactly. But our dogs eat food. That, yep. They need they need food, and. So what they did is they they started getting their their nose in to the to the state the state level and putting pressure on the manufacturers. So all of a sudden, one of the big things was relative to meat products. It was common practice, and I still say that it's safe. And some people would argue with me, but. My son gets his ability to argue probably from me, so we'll have that debate. <laughs> is if you have a if you have a, a a cow that dies during calf birth, mm -hmm. okay, those that was considered a diner. Okay, you either right. took it to if you took it to a rendering plant or the rendering plant picked it up, they skinned it, they sold the hides, they ground up, they in this case they took the guts out, or at the very least. They slashed it and they flushed everything out. They flushed the blood out and they would grind that. And then they would, they would render it into meat and bone meal. Mm -hmm. Well, today, probably very few manufacturers are using a meat and a meat meal or a meat and bone meal that comes from dead stock. 
Right. It's virtually all coming from human scrap side. So obviously those costs go up. You know, they forget about the fact that that diner cow that they rendered, they're getting the high grade fat that's coming off it. That's going into cosmetics. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all, all types of stuff that, that people were using to make themselves beautiful and healthy was coming from that same dead cow. You know, you had uh, the phenomena for a while that people said, we had people used to criticize us as, oh, that dog food plant, you know, they're killing horses. Well, the reality was horse meat's pretty good quality food for dogs. Mm -hmm. Horse meat in the United States after about 1960 was extremely expensive because there was, people weren't killing horses. Okay. And, and that was the last thing you used because if you wanted, if you wanted horse meat for any reason, you know, it was three times as expensive as, as beef. Then you had the, you had the thing where, if you remember the mad cow disease. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think a lot of the perception around downers is there was something wrong with that cow. So, uh, you know, we can't dare feed our, our dogs that that sort of thing i wouldn't eat it so i'm not going to allow my dog to eat it and i think it's just something that we've seen in our culture with our with our dogs getting away from that utilitarian use of a dog and honestly you know i can tell you that these two dogs laying on the couch behind me right here don't need a high performance dog food they just they simply don't it's it's they need the nutrition to be active and stay alive and be healthy. But to think that I need to feed them a premium dog food uh, to achieve that, I think I think we've been duped by the pet food market and marketing and different things like that in these days. So, so Chip, I'm going to start feeding them a different dog food. Well, and, and the reality <laughs> is if, if you're feeding them the same dog food that, that a high-performance working dog needs – you probably can't feed that dog little enough to keep that dog from being a pain in the neck. Exactly. Arguing yeah. that yeah. they're hungry all yeah. the time. Okay. Cause there's still yeah. something to be said to, for an animal as well as people from the standpoint of the satisfaction side that, okay, I, I feel like my stomach's okay. I've got something in it. But yeah. yeah. You, you yeah. think about it. Uh, if you have a, a 60 pound dog and you're feeding top of the line performance food, you probably ought to be feeding maybe a cup a day. Right. That right. dog is not going to be happy eating a cup a day. <laughs> That's exactly right. I tell my wife all the time her pit bulls fat. And of course, modern vets will look at them and say, oh, their weight is really good. I really like it. Well, they're used to seeing obese people come in with obese dogs into their pet veterinary clinic and they're just used to looking at it. You know, it's like we've looked at it so often that it, now it's normal. And we've got yes, away dude. from from the, uh, you know, the the, the body condition <laughs> and things to, to really judge the condition of a dog. Hey, we I have got to move on to okay. I, I really want to talk. Jerry Mall told me one time that if it was not for you, Chip Kozier, that there would be no PKC youth program. So let's, I think that's a good place to dive into how Joy Dog Food has supported houndsmen and hound competition and youth programs and all sorts of things. And I also want to talk about Jarvis Humphreys. Jarvis just passed. Um, 
and you had a very good relationship with Jarvis for a number of years. And I want to touch on that for our listeners. I, I'm the type of person that I don't care if Diamond or Purina or whoever is making the best dog food. The, if they are not supporting my lifestyle, then I'm not going to support them. If they're not supporting me as a houndsman, then I'm not going to support them. So does that make sense? No, it, 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 it absolutely, it absolutely does. And actually that was something that, that we probably banked on <laughs> that if, yeah. if, if this is something where, where we want to, we want to do something together mm-hmm. and, and, and the Hansman or the Hansman group uh, provides one piece of that. And, and if in fact we as a, as a, uh, a vendor to them, if you will, or to their members can supply another piece of it. Then do we both get everything we want? Probably not. But if we both get what we need, that that's a win, you know, which you it's don't, a, it's a mutual, mutual will, loyalty. Yeah. It's one. Well, and it, and it's of mutual benefit. And the reality mm-hmm. is I think it's in any type, any other type of deal is if, if both sides don't come away from it satisfied, it was not a good deal. Both both sides of an equation has has to feel like their needs were met. And mm-hmm. and the one thing that, that we did when we first got involved seriously with Kundal World, like I said, early on we were involved with excuse me, the Grand American and, and the old ACHA. I remember whenever Prina came in and bought the ACHA registry, I was at the meeting. Okay. And Prina was making a big deal. They wanted to, they wanted control of this. Well, what mm-hmm. they didn't know whenever they got the registry is old Clovis had a four drawer file cabinet and that was the ACHA registry. And that's all they got for their big dollars. <laughs> that came from New York. Good for Clovis. <laughs> <laughs> if you remember Clovis, okay, and we're sitting there in the meeting, and my dad and I are sitting there, and of course we knew Clovis and the other guys, and we knew how we operated, and and they're making this big pitch with you know the New York slicks come in from AKC. Well, actually, it was AKC, not Prina. I apologize. Okay. AKC wanted that registry, and they're dickering back and forth, and we're sitting there smiling at each other, and Clovis looks over and winks. We knew what he had. <laughs> he knew what he had. They didn't know what he had. So they were dealing with an unknown. And and and, and the old boys that were directors of a, uh, ACHA, they might have made out okay. And I, I guess AKC thought that they got a good deal. But yeah. I think from that, and I don't know, I don't know when my dad first interacted with Jarvis. I'm guessing it was probably – maybe the ACHA world hunt, the little world hunt, one of those events. My dad, the last, my dad died in 95. He was active in the business until 93. And probably for the seven or eight years prior to that, my dad spent cumulatively probably eight or nine months a year on the road. Okay, and for many years, my stepmom Judy traveled with him. Mm-hmm. And what he what he did is he went from event to event to event to event to event. And it might be something as big as the Grand American, 
or it might be as big as the AC, the old ACHA little world hunt, or it might be, it might be a, a, you know, a bird dog sanction trial where there was 15 entries. Right. But, but he was someplace. I mean, there was times when we go two or three weeks. I didn't even know where he was at. Yeah. And that's like, I finally got to the point where as business changes and, and, Prices change. I finally got to the point I won't let him carry a price list because he'd be out of out of contact for so long. He'd be quoting prices to somebody, and it wasn't the current price list. He might be a couple price lists behind. You know, he'd he'd get somebody like Nick Nick, Nick DiGiacomo and tell him he could get a trailer load of dog food delivered for eight thousand dollars. Well, guess what? That was six months ago. It's eighty five hundred dollars now. <laughs> right. Okay, and and Nick's upset with me because I just jacked his price five hundred dollars on twenty two twenty ton of dog food. Okay, right. right. So we, so I finally told Dad. I said, "Don't make me and you both look bad." I said, "Don't quote prices anymore." I said, "Just, just deal with people," and 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 that was, that was the key of our involvement was a relationship early on that he built with people. Mm-hmm. They felt he was honest. Uh, he was he was certainly upfront with what he thought was right and wrong. Uh, he wasn't afraid to say he was wrong. He wasn't afraid to say he was sorry. Yeah. And at least to that type of person, that was real important. And I think our involvement in money cases with the coon dog world was because they were our kind of people. I think that's still true today. I think that's still true today. I think um, houndsmen out here want to deal with people that they trust, people that are going to tell them the truth, going to honor their word, people that are humble, but also have high integrity. And I think that is what is still um, making a mark in dog food companies now. If I go and order off a of Chewy, and I order a bag of dog food from, I'm not going to name a name, I guess, but if I order, you know, one of the common, common brands that I see thrown around, what I don't know is where is my money going? Where are their loyalties? Where are those things going? And I, that's why I've been so excited and I've pursued joy so hard to be our sponsor here is to, to get that message out there. But so, so tell us the story. I think one of the things that people may not realize about joy, how did you get involved in the youth programs, the, the PKC youth programs? We thought it was safe. And I'll tell you why I say that. If you were dealing with, how do I want to say it? The keen competitors. The, mm -hmm the big boys. Okay. Or, or the ones that, that were extremely successful. Uh, we actually learned our lesson early on. If you, if you remember, we used to advertise in all of the dog working dog magazines. Okay. Right. And one of the things we did for a number of years, we would feature individuals and it wasn't individuals that we went to and says, let us run an ad with you and your dog in it. And we'll feed your dogs. In absolutely no case was it ever a situation where we paid one dollar 
for, for somebody to be in a joy ad. Mm-hmm. Not one case did we ever feed their dogs in, adv- in advance of them saying that they preferred joy dog food. It was people that fed joy dog food had reached a level of notoriety, if you will, where they would be a recognized name or, or as we know in the Han world, you don't have to remember the man's name. You remember his dog's name and he's happy. Right. right. And that was fortunate for me because I was terrible with people's names, but I could always remember the dog's name. Uh, so we, we ran those ads and then we get some backlash because you always find somebody out there that found out that this guy or felt whether it was real or not, that this guy had skinned them on a, on a deal with a dog mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, the judge was on his side on a cast and didn't pay attention to my call or whatever the case might be. So after two or three years of doing that, yeah, it, it, it got our name in front of folks. They got started talking about joy dog food, but in some case we were, we were being accused of not being totally picking favorites, uh, reliable because we were picking favorites and obviously we must be doing something for them and they weren't necessarily their most favored competitor. So we backed off of that and, and not just with the coon dog world, but to a major part with coon dog world, we said, if we can focus on the kids, that takes away some of that junk. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you and I might be fierce com- adult competitors and we might try to run each other into the ground when we have a chance. But if our kids are out there on a cast, I'm going to help your kid. You're going to help my kid. So that that's how that came about is, and I don't quite honestly, I don't, I'm sure what Jarvis, you know, we know that he was the PT Barnum of Goon world, Goon dog world. Okay. So I'm, yeah. I'm sure he was looking for some type of something to promote because that, mm-hmm. that was what? Jarvis's lifeblood and rather he suggests I'm sure he suggested that we do something with PKC. And my dad's response was, if we're going to do something with PKC, we're going to do it with the kids. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and that's how you, that's how the relationship started with PKC. Absolutely. Was through the youth program. Actually, before that, my, my first involvement was whenever they had the national of course, PCA, the national championship was a much bigger deal than the, the world hunt early on. And I remember being in, I guess it was Effingham maybe where they had their first national championship and they were under a, a circus tent. Okay. okay. Up, in, up in Illinois. <laughs> and that was the first time I was there. Uh, it was myself. It was my dad, uh, my stepmom, Judy, Mike Harper, who was very involved, Lester Walker, who was a salesman we had from Kentucky that, that, that was very involved. And matter of fact, I remember the night there's a whole bunch of people in that tent and a, and a, and a mama skunk and her, and her litter of little ones come traipsing through the middle of the tent. And you had a couple hundred people scurrying for the scurrying for the exit. But during that time is the idea of a youth hunt was, was born initially, as you may well know, the kids had to compete in regional qualifiers. There was only 12 kids eligible for the joy youth hunt okay but the kids participated in qualifiers all of a sudden that got in adults involved with getting kids involved in competition coon hunting right and it was i don't know there was 
10 or 12 or 15 regional events throughout innumerable states. If a kid had to win a regional to be eligible, originally it was the first time it was only 12 kids. What year would have that have been? Yeah. Probably mid 80s. Mm -hmm. I could probably find some old PKC magazines back there and then see what the date was. Mike Creasy won the first one. Yeah, Mike yeah. Creasy. Now he's a big shot county commissioner or something up in Kentucky. <laughs> he won. He won the first one, and and that was, and the deal was there. We put up X number of dollars every year. Uh, Jarvis put it in a separate account, and it it was held until those kids had a need for it, whenever they went to college, and they had to use it either for college or trade school or something of that nature. It wasn't a. They didn't get the money. It wasn't a blank check. It wasn't just a handed over check. It went into a, a trust fund or, or a scholarship and actually, fund. And actually, at least early on, the checks that, that PKC wrote out of that, that account went to the school. It did not. It never went to the end, the kid or went to their parents. <clears throat> it went directly to the school. You know, wow. some, you know, like I said, it could be a trade school, could be college, whatever the case might be. Uh, I know Chip ran into one of the kids, Duran Link, that won mm -hmm. multiple times uh, a few months ago. And, and Duran says, Joy Dog Food paid for my college. Wow. Now he was yeah. successful more than one year. Uh, and then it, it morphed to, to the point where it got bigger and bigger. And there was years when we had 30 or 40 or 50 kids. If you know, if you think about some of those pictures that appeared in Pro Hunt, with Mike Harper and myself, I mean, you know, the whole matter of fact, you know, would order four or five dozen jackets just so the kids all had a joy jacket on. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and if it was a, a kid that was relatively good size, he had to hide it from his dad or his dad. <laughs> uh, yeah. I actually was able to fit in Duran's shirt jacket from whenever Duran was a kid. And I'm not a little guy. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it was all, it was all about the kids when, when they went. And of course that all happened at Aurora. Actually, I think early on, I think the first year was not at Aurora. It might have been at Mayfield. But Aurora was whenever the thing really expanded with a bunch of kids. <clears throat> we took them to a place called Willow Pond every year for, for a luncheon. And it was for us and the kids. The parents could come if they want, but the focus was the kids. And every year we would have somebody, some some adult, for lack of a better term, make a, a pitch to these kids about mm -hmm. life lessons, not about coon hunting. Right. And not about and not about anything else. It was it was about life lessons. And that was important. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you talk about our involvement with PKC, I think dealing with people that you're comfortable with. I remember my dad telling me one year after the world hunt, and it was a year I couldn't be there. And one of the, one of the things that he that impressed him most was that Jarvid asked him to say the prayer at the opening of the world hunt. Yeah. Yeah. It says a lot about your dad's character right there. So, he's a guy that was trusted. He was a guy that was involved. He was a guy that cared and people saw that and wanted to support joy dog food. Yeah, I, I guarantee you there was people who fed joy dog food that didn't think it was the best dog food. 
<laughs> now, well, now, many of them gave us feedback that we developed some more formulas that was to more of their liking. You know, Joy Super Meal and Joy High Energy right. and some of those things that came about not so much from a nutritionist conjuring it up in a lab, but from real feedback. But customers that we trusted. Right. Okay. And right. you'd make up you'd make up four or five ton of it and you'd you'd put it out five hundred pound at a time to a, a half a dozen people that you trust and say, tell me what you think. Okay. Yeah. Feed, feed feed this compared to the diamond. Feed this compared mm -hmm. to one of our other formulas. Tell us what you think. And it was people you knew was going to give you honest feedback, and you weren't hearing it from a research kennel somewhere with a bunch of people with white coats. You were hearing it from people with dog crap on their feet. Right. And you knew it was real. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that allowed us to better suit our products to, to the, the people we were trying to appeal to. Yeah. So what other programs did you get involved with at PKC? Well, once again, Jarvis being the PT Barnum, always always was working for another angle when he came up with this thing called Super Stakes. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and, and at that time, my dad was somewhat involved, but basically told Jarvis, he said, if you want to put something together like that, he says, I'll, I'll concentrate on the kids, but if you want something beyond that, you need to talk to Chip and Mike Harper. And... Uh, so I was working with Mike in West Tennessee, calling on some customers. And we agreed to go down to Jarvis's place in Myrtle, Mississippi, and sit down and talk about some bright ideas that he had. And, and once again, I love Jarvis, and I appreciated Jarvis, and I respected Jarvis. But, but Jarvis always, always had one more thing that he was wanting to throw in the hat. And, and if you'd bite it, Jarvis was real happy to feed it to you. Okay. And I, matter of fact, I remember saying to Mike, what's Jarvis really up to? And he said, Chip, I honestly don't know. And I said, well, let's go down and visit with him and let's see what he has in mind. Well, on the way down there, number one, we got caught in a storm. Number two, we got hung up at a customer and it was a good customer. So we had, we had to spend the time that he wanted to spend with us. So we headed out of, from Memphis at a bot probably 9.30 at night. We just got across the Mississippi line and Harper was doing uh, probably 90 and a 55. And of yeah. course, a blue, a blue light comes up behind us. And a big old trooper from Mississippi comes and walks up to the door and taps on the window. And says, uh, you know why I pulled you over? And, and Harper, if you were ever around him, he, the typical West Tennessee accent, you could only half understand them. I finally got to the point after working for him, working for me for about eight years, I could actually understand what he said. Matter of fact, he would give speeches sometimes at the, at PKC and, and somebody like, like Roy Trummel would turn around to me and said, what in the world did he say? Yeah. So anyhow, he's mumbling back and forth with this big old cop from Mississippi. And finally Mike pulls out his, license and his registration and find out his registration had run out six months before. So now we're in a big, big world of, of, of hurt. So 
they talked for a little bit longer. And finally I said to the trooper, I said, you know, we're not trying to avoid anything. You know, if, if there's a ticket involved, so be it. He's well, where are you going this time of night? We're going to Myrtle, Mississippi. We're going down there to meet with a guy that's involved with coon dogs. Well, it turns out his daddy had coon dogs and that conversation went on for another 15 or 20 minutes. Well, finally we, we left with Mike getting a warning and a promise, a promise that he would send in his registration on the truck as soon as he got home. So we get to, to Jarvis's about 1130 at night. Mm -hmm. Joyce had planned on cooking us a steak dinner. So obviously we took time to eat a steak dinner before Jarvis made his pitch. We got to talking and at that time they were, they were doing this super steaks pup hunt was in its infancy. And Jarvis says he wanted to do something to push the pup side of that. And it finally settled out that what they were going to do is they were going to have a pup of the month based on whatever points they earned during that month, they would publish it in those 12 pup of the months, they would be eligible for a hunt. And he had decided that it, he had made some type of arrangements with lady luck casino, that it would be held at the casino. And he felt, well, that would be a good draw because the guys would bring their wives because their wives would, want to go shopping and they'd want to be in the go play the swap machines or whatever. And he says, but uh, I need sponsorship. And I said, Jarvis, you've got all kind of money coming from the super stakes. I want you to just reach into your pocket and pull some out. He said, ah, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, obviously that money coming in had already been spent, I'm sure. And he said, well, we need to do something and, you know, we don't need to do something for all of them because there's some prestige involved, but, you know, maybe we can do final cast or we may do cast winners. And I said, Jarvis, that's going to be too complicated. I said, if I'm involved in it, I said, I'm going to have to keep track of it. And I said, how many times, how many places you, you pay down or how many cast winners you pay down? I says, people are going to come up to me and say, why did you do it that way? And I says, and I'm not going to have a clue. I'm going to have to say, well, that was one of Jarvis's deals. So why don't we just make it simple? I says, we'll just make it winner takes all. He says, mm -hmm. well, you know, we don't do winner takes all. And I says, if you want me to pay for it, we're going to do winner takes all. More entry fees back in then, by the way. Right, right. Well, right. I don't know, a couple hundred bucks. Well, there was no entry fee for that. Okay. There was no entry fee for that. They qualified. They had already qualified, but I think the world hunt at that time was only 250 bucks, maybe. I don't know what maybe. it is today. Uh, of course, I think it's three three thirty or three fifty somewhere on then there. I haven't hunted it for a couple of years. And of course they had some free passes, but a guy could always yeah. buy back in if he if he lost his yeah. cap or whatever. But uh so I said, boy, I says, money has a tendency to take this thing. And I says, and, and money doesn't give me a whole lot of exposure. I said, these guys all drive four-wheel drive pickups. Or if they don't have a four-wheel drive, they're driving two-wheel drive out in the country. Mm -hmm. They wish they had a four-wheel drive and they're finding a buddy to ride with. I says, why don't we just give away a truck? Well, drivers really like the money side of it more. 
You know, we went back and forth and back and forth. <laughs> and Jarvis and I did many times for many years. Like I said, I loved them like a brother, but there was times when we argued like brothers too. And uh, so finally he said, okay, if that's what you want to do, that's, that's what we'll do. And that's what started the truck hunt. The truck hunt. And, and that, that was a big, him yeah, from a mar- marketing standpoint, I mean, you know, here's, here's a truck that's on the front of the magazine. Nobody had ever done it before. No, no, no. And, and it wasn't a lease. As a matter of fact, once again, how things get somewhat uh, to the point where you scratch your head, Harper knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who had a, a, a dealership. And, you know, part of the thing was the very first year, they actually had one of their salesmen bring the truck down. Yeah. Well, after that, we developed a good enough relationship that they handed Harper an open title, no plates. Would pick, he'd pick the truck up somewhere in Kentucky. Would drive it to Lady Luck, no plates, no title, no an open title, no registration. <laughs> and this all came out of getting stopped by a trooper to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah, because we actually we actually came finalized the plan at about two thirty in the morning. Yeah. And Joyce is so, telling Jarvis we need to go to bed, and Jarvis says we ain't done talking yet. <laughs> so, the birth of the truck hunt happened at Jarvis's table, and Joy Dog Food bought the truck. Absolutely. And wow. and then and then of course a couple years later it, it grew to the point where we they had the handler of the month. Yeah. And then we did and then we 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 did that. Uh then it just became known as the truck hunt. You know, you're running for a truck ticket. What oh, you yeah. guys did changed the culture. Nobody had ever done that before, put up a truck for that. So even today, you've still got people that are running these open events, running for a truck ticket, going to, you know, Lula, Mississippi and, and hunting for the truck. And it's still very prestigious. And, and to think that it all started around Jarvis's table. You've said it a couple times. Um, you said Jarvis was a PT Barnum of coon honey. And, um, I'm sure you're saying that as a term of admiration. Absolutely. And, and, uh, but part of the, one of the things I want to cover is, you know, let's spend about five minutes here and just talk about Jarvis and what he did for, competition coon hunting and the impact that that he had and and uh, hit what his life mean meant to the modern day coon hunter in 2021 in in my in my opinion jarvis took took it to the next level where where the coon hunting hunting world now had not two or three major events that that drew people's attention whether they were able to participate or not but all of a sudden you know you've got some podunk hunt somewhere that's got a 10 or fifteen thousand dollar purse okay mm-hmm. those things all were in my opinion were end result of this brainchild that was originally jarvis's and a lot of and early on there was a lot of criticism from the other organizations that PKC was all about money. It wasn't around. Oh, about, yeah. It wasn't about coon hunting. And I'm sure some of them are still singing that same still, song today. Still going around. Still goes uh, around today. And 
from my view, and I had the opportunity to not be intimately inside what was going on at PKC, but I was I was close enough to it that there wasn't the there wasn't the chicanery that PKC was oftentimes accused of by the other organizations. It, it was it was it was run pretty straight, mm-hmm. and and there was times whenever there was modifications that were or were not graciously accepted by everybody. But in, in many of those cases, I think they were changes. It was absolutely necessary for PKC to survive. Uh, you know, Jarvis didn't become a billionaire because of his involvement in PKC. Uh, I, I think he enjoys probably could enjoy a good steak once or twice a week, but that's about the extent that it, that it got to. Uh, right. You know, and then you went through the evolution where where Larry got involved, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 Larry, you know, the last thing he needed was PKC. <laughs> uh, but but that that was a necessary step, and and now uh, RD with RD having and RD was was there early on, obviously with with Jarvis. I mean, that's been yeah. his life for what thirty years yeah. uh, or more. But I, I, I think when it came to the competition coon dog world, Jarvis created, and it started in its infancy, the, the phenomena that PKC has become today. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's gone through metamorphosis a couple of times, but I don't. And I'm not real close to it, obviously, today, but I don't think PKC or that whole coon dog competition world would would be accurately described the way it is today if you wouldn't have had Jarvis Umphers or somebody like Jarvis Umphers to basically create the brain travel that, yeah. that it grew into. I know modern day modern day PKC hunters, and this was all started with the pioneering efforts of Jarvis here, but they hang their hat on that PKC stands for professional kennel club. Yeah. Um you're talking about guys who I mean, we got guys now that are bringing home two hundred thousand dollars a year as handlers. Um We've got dogs, dog prices that are unimaginable, especially in the 1950s. But even from the time when I started in the 80s to through the 90s to now, you're talking, you know, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars for a hound that's qualified for the truck hunt or a, a top, top competitor for super stakes or whatever it is. And that was all through the efforts of Jarvis and having that vision to take houndsman and coon hunting to the next level um what a master plan to call that thing started out as a professional coon hunters association later known as a professional kennel club that was just that was genius well and i I think in the in the certainly in the coon dog world it was the first one i believe because it was the first one to have dna testing you know Mm -hmm. yeah you know and and obviously and obviously Breeding. When you're talking about when you're talking about stud dogs and that, boy, the old days before DNA, you're talking about a pig and a poke. There's there's probably a reason why some of the other 
support, big supporters. I'm not saying the owners of those organizations, but big supporters didn't like PKC and their DNA profiling. You know, there's a re, <laughs> if, well, you, yeah. if you started peeling back the layers of that onion, it's hard telling what you're going to find back in there behind some of those old hounds. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were ahead of the show dog world and everything else. And of course, I think that came because of Jarvis's familiarity with horses and cattle. Right. You know, right. You want, and, 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 you know, from the standpoint of, of, of buying semen, you know, that was very common with the horse world and the, and sure. the cattle world, but that was unheard of with dogs. I mean, yeah. I remember. What, it's I remember, still hard, still hard yeah. to sell, sell uh, to, to houndsmen. They want a live cover. They are still thinking that that's the only way to breed. And, and, but that's another, that's another part of the puzzle that Jarvis brought to the coon hunting world was the DNA analysis. And, uh, you know, collecting and storing semen from from some of these dogs. It's just that there's several, several pieces to this puzzle that we see that Jarvis and his vision were directly responsible for. Absolutely. Uh, you know, once again, you know, maybe maybe the brainchild might have been Joyce whispering in his ear and she was she she just allowed Jarvis to get all the fanfare for it. <laughs> but uh and, and I'm and, and Jarvis obviously, Jarvis was a was a, a smart man and 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 he knew how to how to coax ideas from other people mm -hmm. and then put it into some type of a usable form, right? And and, and that was the but key. in order to do. But in order to do that, to be able to have that ability. You've got to be a person that people believe in. They trust them. You know, you give them these ideas and, and they know they're going to a good source. He had to have that trust among his, he, he had to be a good leader. He well, had to be an excellent leader. Yeah. I, I would say, you know, you, you say everybody that's, that's reasonably successful, they're either a good leader or a good manager. I think Jarvis was a much more of a great leader than he was a great manager, mm -hmm. you know, Jarvis left the managing and the, the detail to to other people. The people he that he always, trusted. He was always, yeah, you know, he was he was the George Patton. He he didn't say do this and do this and do this and I'll watch. He'd say follow me. Right. And, and I think the other thing that I think he was extremely successful at is there's a big step between an idea and a plan that can be put into action. Mm -hmm. Okay. And whether it was something he dreamed up in the middle of the night as an idea, or he heard it somewhere else or somebody else suggested it or, or whatever. It came on a, a windstorm. Jarvis was ex exceptional at taking that idea and then conjuring up a plan that was, that was usable mm -hmm. because an idea is only an idea and it's only a dream unless it can be put into motion and Jarvis would figure out some way to make it into something that worked. Wow. Yeah. That's a great, great tribute. Well, we are going to have to wrap this one up. Have you got any, any final thoughts you want to wrap up about Jarvis or joy dog food before we, before we sign this thing off, we're going to hear from little chip one last time. I, I think, uh, as I said, Jarvis, I consider him a, a, a true friend. Uh I talked about the fact that what an innovator he was, uh, but I think I think probably the one of the biggest things, as I said before, we'd, we'd argue like brothers. 
but then mm-hmm. would come up with something that worked and would stand shoulder to shoulder like like brothers. And and I think, at least from my standpoint, I might be small minded, but from my perspective, and I know it was my dad's perspective before me, is you're willing to try almost anything with anybody as long as when you put your shoulder to the wheel, the other guy's pushing on the other wheel just as hard. And Man, that's, 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 that's kind of the way this, I, that's the same philosophy I use with the podcast, really. Yeah. You and know? you know, and when you think about, and from, I, I think something that was extremely attractive to us, I said the thing about dad, being excited about the fact he got to say the prayer at the opening exercise of the world hunt. But when you had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in that tennis center at Aurora, forget about their individual personalities, forget about their individual lifestyle. They stood up for the national anthem. Right. They took their hat off. Yeah. And they bowed their hair when their head when somebody prayed. Mm-hmm. That says a lot about the character of houndsmen. You know, houndsmen are still today so patriotic, so so faithful to you know the the. I'm not going to say the simple things in life, but the important things in our world. They still have their eye on that prize. They can be, pra- we're, you know, we're a pragmatic group, but we also like to have principles in our life and, and stick to those principles. And I think that says a lot for Joy Dog Food and, and for you guys to be able, you know, as a company and as a family, to be able to play a part in that is just speaks volumes for you, Chip, and, and, and for your involvement in the youth and, and all the programs. So hats off to you. Thanks for talking to you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Chip, little chip. Yes, sir. Hey, I want to thank you for setting this up. I, I sincerely enjoyed um, this conversation that I had with your dad, you know, what a wealth of knowledge. So thank you for setting this up. No problem at all. It's good to bring him out of retirement every now and again. (laughs) Man, we could, I think we could could have gone on for about four or five more hours and and learned all sorts of things about dog food, the dog food industry. I know I I didn't ask a lot of the questions I had, but uh, and then and then the impact that that Joy Dog Food had on competition coon hunting, and what you guys are trying to do now. So I mean, you guys are still trying to you you're jumping back in the game now. Well, it's it's not like we're doing anything different. Um, we're just following the footprint of what dad and grandpa did before us. Right. Right. And, and starting it over again. Right. And I, I will, I will jump back in for one second and remember right. that the tie between joy dog food then and joy dog food today, that started with my dad finding some guy that had an old dog that was sleeping in a pup tent at the world hunt. And didn't have the money to get a motel room. Wade Grasswitz. And Dad told him, he said, I'll get you a room. And Wade said, no, I'm okay where I'm at. And then Wade became a dog food customer. 
Right. Then he became a dog food dealer. And then he decided, well, he didn't want to just be Joy Dog Food, so he had to come up with his own brand. And eventually yeah. it went full circle. And uh, for a while he actually had to put up with me. But that was, <laughs> he probably views that as a very, very, very big blessing compared to putting up with my son. But I will say. I guarantee it. Chip, Chip will never be able to run a business the way I did, but he can sell stuff that I never could have sold. <laughs> and I'm sure that's why Wade loves them. <laughs> oh man. We, are you going to, I'm not going to let you have the final word, Chip, little Chip. <laughs> no, that's fine. Dad, Dad gets the final word on this one. Guys, I, hey, I really appreciate your time this morning. It's been it's been great, and uh, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, we're going to sign off with our tagline. Until next time, you follow your hounds, and I'll follow mine. <laughs> <laughs>